can't pay the IRS, haven't filed in a while, receiving threatening letters? Yeah, it's about to get worse. The IRS is hiring an army of agents targeting hardworking Americans like you. You need warriors on your side. You need Tax Network USA. Tax Network USA has brilliant strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. For instance, they've discovered a limited-time special offer that the IRS is willing to waive $1 billion in penalties. Find out if you qualify before it's too late. Never call the IRS alone. Let Tax Network USA attorneys handle it. They have preferred direct lines to the IRS. They know which agents to work with and which to avoid. They've resolved over $1 billion in tax debts and offer a best-in-class guarantee. Schedule your free consultation now. Call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000. Or visit TNUSA.com slash Victor. TNUSA.com slash Victor. Hello, everyone. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Victor is an author, scholar, political commentator, and boy, he's got many hats as a philologist, classicist, you name it. His latest book is The Dying Citizen, and it is about citizenship and the crisis that we're seeing in citizenship in the modern time. If you heard a dog right now, that was my um, one of my Queenslands, so uh, we'll, we'll cut her some slack. But stick with us because we're going to get into Biden's cabinet, um, the Peloponnesian War, and the word policeman, I guess I should say, with Raul Dahl. I hope I said his name right. But stick with us. We're going to listen to some messages. We'll be right back. Folks, we're sponsored today by Donors Trust, the tax-friendly way to preserve your charitable giving. In times of crisis, those with a giving spirit and a desire to build up civil society find ways to be helpful. And that's when it's good to have a charitable resource ready to deploy when they're needed most. Donors Trust offers donor-advised funds or giving accounts. You can use these funds as your own charitable investment account and manage your charitable giving in a way that's smart, tax-advantaged, aligned with your values, and private. Donors Trust clients are using their funds to support charities helping their local communities while also using their giving account to simultaneously support think tanks and liberty-minded organizations that believe our constitutional rights shouldn't get lost in a time of emergency. Now is the time to take a closer look at Donors Trust and join their community of liberty-minded donors by opening a donor-advised fund. Go to DonorsTrust.org slash JustNews for the ultimate survival guide to charitable giving and learn how a donor advice fund can preserve your ability to give to the charities you love. That's donorstrust.org slash just news. At Just the News, we break the stories others in the media ignore or are too afraid to tell. We did it on Russia collusion, Hunter Biden, and the security and intelligence failures that preceded January 6th. Our stories have real impact and reach because we stick to the facts. I'm John Solomon. You can help me expand our honest, unvarnished, and unbiased reporting by becoming a premium member at Just the News. You'll get an ad-free experience and exclusive member-only access to events, and you'll be helping us dig up more truth. Join today at justthenews.com slash subscribe. 
We're back, and this is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. It is produced by John Solomon's Just the News, and he is an investigative reporter, and you can find lots of news on John's site. Again, that is justthenews.com. Uh, Victor, we I know we've talked about the cabinet, Biden's cabinet before, and went through some of the failings, but we have recent stories on with Mayorkas and Buttigieg, and I was wondering if you had new reflections on our current cabinet members. Yeah, we've talked about a lot, but they've been in the news lately, and Alexandro Mayorkas is uh, under, there's been a lot of calls. I was surprised for his impeachment. I was surprised that uh, Andy McCarthy in the National Review called for him to be impeached, but he basically said that would be a waste of time because he just follows orders and that Joe Biden should be impeached. And the argument is that there are federal statutes that govern who can come across the border and you can't just walk across the border. And yet 5 million people have with impunity walked across the border. And Mr. Mayorkas sort of gave the game away the other day when he was asked about this. He used to say it was secure. Do you remember that? It's secure. And then he would, <laughs> when people would see this mob flow across every day, he kind of has given up that because, well, I only, uh, I only act in accordance with our values. That's what he said. So you can see what that means. It means that he has taken upon himself to ignore a statute, which is an impeachable offense. If everybody did what Mallorcas did and said that I'm only going to follow my values, you can see where it would lead to. Uh, you know, you're in Utah. No little spotted toad for me. I'm not going. I'm going to smash that little sucker and build my apartment building, as I said, over the top of him. Even if he is on the endangered species list, I want to have a you know a Glock. So maybe I'll just go pass a law and say, you know what, in Wyoming, federal gun registration laws no longer apply because I'm I'm going to reflect the Constitution. Well, you can see what would happen. So all of these people on the left that are nullifiers of federal law feel that they have, they can appeal to higher moral authority, but no one else can. And that's what's so strange about it. So he's, he's a complete failure. He's destroyed it. And, and it's going to take years. It's going to cost two, three, four hundred billion dollars for, and they add it for, to accommodate all these five million and they add it to, they go into a hotel. Illegal immigrants in New York, and they trash it basically. And then they say, you know what? You can't keep trashing the hotel and getting free stuff. And then they get demonstrate and they get angry. We're going to go to Canada. Oh, it's too cold. So once you allow somebody to come into your country without audit or without legality or even without English or an education or means of support, then they have contempt for you. They don't have magnum. They don't see that magnanimity to be reciprocated. They have a contempt. They see it as weakness, and that's what happens. And he doesn't understand that. He's been the worst homeland security. I don't even know why we have a homeland security. I thought they, we had other agencies that, that George Bush created it after nine eleven. But he's been a a disaster. But the elephant in the room is Pete Buttigieg, isn't it? Yes, I was just going to mention he's probably worse than Mayorkas if it's possible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, his problem is 
that his, the sum total of his political experience was he was the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. What, well, 40,000 people? That's His dad was a professor. He was just a Notre Dame uh, campus town mayor. And from what we can tell, he was a terrible mayor. But he was appointed because he ran for president on the idea that he had done certain things. He was educated. He had gone to Afghanistan, even though he was not in combat situations there and he was gay and that made the first remember all these people are the first the first the first this the first that the first native american interior secretary the first gay transportation secretary but he had no he had no ability other than to be what glib he's he's a talker he just talks and he thinks he can string together sentences he's kind of like kamala harris but they meet i mean they're not that pathetic, but he never does anything. So he's, you know, he's with his boyfriend on maternity leave. I don't think either one of them was pregnant necessarily, but nevertheless, you know, some, but when you usually have maternity leave, the male is there because the woman went through childbirth, right? And yeah. it's very hard. I'm not sure that that quite is the same, but who am I to yeah. judge? But he's, asleep at the wheel. So on his watch, we had the transport transportation department kind of implode. We have these supply chain issues where our ports are, are crowded. There are rail lines into the ports are not only crowded and, and dysfunctional, but often looted. And then we had this huge holiday shutdown over Christmas because of weather and then a computer outage. And then we had the Southwest Airlines disaster. And then we, you and I talked about the four near misses in New York and Texas and Hawaii and LAX where people were either injured or almost killed. And now we have a rail car in East Palestine, Ohio, right on top of the, the border with Pennsylvania that he hasn't been there. He hasn't, and FEMA, we, as we said earlier, hasn't, didn't do anything for two weeks. And so he's been pressed upon it. And it's, it's just the first little glib answer he said was, well, we have thousands. We have, you don't know. <laughs> Let me tell you, I'm Pete Bajig and, you know, you're so ignorant. You don't understand the complexity. But the fact is, you idiots, there's a thousand accidents a year. So what is the big deal? And then that didn't work too well. And then he went back to his second little sanctimonious self-righteous glibness. Well, you know, there's two types of people who go to these things. And one are just the grand, the grandstanders, wink, nod, wink, nod, Trump, who is there today as we speak. And then there's the people who really do something. They only go there to implement these policies. And that didn't work too well because he's not going to go there at all, apparently. He's just telling us. And then he was asked specifically by George Stephanopoulos in his one little puny question, well, when are you going to go? Well, I'll go. I'll go. But I'll go when I'm there to do something. And then the third thing was he said as the same thing with the, uh, you know, Kind of like Carthago Delinda S with the Elder Cato, Carthage must be destroyed at the end of every speech. So the end of every speech with these guys, it's Trump did it, Trump did it, Trump mm -hmm. did it. And that was with the Chinese balloon. Remember, Trump did it first. Trump did it first. Well, now it's Trump took, he, he took the electric blank, uh, 
extra heavy-duty electric brake requirement off tank cars, and that's what did it. No, this is a different situation. This was not oil and gas. And so uh, he can't do anything because he doesn't have any knowledge of transportation, and he has contempt for the people there. And should he go to East Palestine— and he would go to a town meeting, as most transportation secretaries would have already done, he would just give glib little answers about, well, our, that they were okay, and it's all in their head. And they would be, they wouldn't like him, and they would be, and he doesn't want that. He doesn't want to be told. His idea is to get in a limo and then have the limo drop him off and then ride a mile on a bike with his tie and show everybody this is clean energy. And indeed, right during the whole crisis, what was he attention on? What was he sending press releases about? How white hard hats working on transportation projects do not look like the community in which they're working. Well, that's a real big issue, isn't it? Or that the interstate highway project of the 1950s was predicated on racism. And so he's never done anything other than demagogue the woke agenda. And, and he thinks he's going to ride that way to the presidency. The only tragedy, this is a tragedy because his nonchalance and incompetence have hurt so many people, but it has had one beneficial unexpected effect. It's blown up his presidential chances. I don't think this guy could run for president. He's mm -hmm. nobody would vote for him. And he's so smug. He's so self-righteous. He's so incompetent and he's so arrogant and he hasn't done anything but left a trail of disasters in his wake that I think he's over with. Yeah. I but think the, you're going to tell the, me it gets I'm worse. Gonna, yeah. I was going to say Buttigieg in my Mallorca's impotence seems only matched by Blinken if I'm Blinken or Blinken, 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 Blinken. I mean, he we we first met Blinken in March of 2021 at the Alaska Mini Summit when the Chinese just looked at him and said, nah, "You're not gonna. <laughs> we don't care what you say. Just stop that crap. We do what we want, and you suffer as you must. And that's the way it's going to be. Got it? And he just took it. And ever since then, you know, he. He said that there's going to be – he really wanted to go to China, poor Mr. Blinken. He wanted to go to China. He wanted to make a big break. And, and, those, and, and then those stupid balloons, and he didn't know what to do. So when he said he had to cancel because they – and he never made the connection that maybe they let the balloon off so they would humiliate us before he went to China, thinking <laughs> that, that he either wouldn't go to China, which would be good for them, or he would go uh, – humiliated, which would, be, which would be even better for them. But it, when he's saying, I'm not going to go to China, then he started to go, but we have so many things to work on. Climate change, <laughs> the greatest coal producer and polluter in the world. So he's an incompetent. And uh, you can see when he says that China's that's going to be a red line should they start supplying Russia with weapons, and they already are under the table. But what would that mean? What would he mean? What would he do to China? What would the United States do? Uh, we have. Would they bring all of the investment back? I hope they would. I don't think they would do that, though. Would they expel some Chinese students? Uh, no, they're not going to do that. Would they expel Chinese professors that are here as visitors to see if they have ties, like the Stanford neuro professor, neuro biologist who was a member of the People's Liberation Army, 
No, it's just talk. Talk, yeah. talk, talk. Mr. Talk. Who else you do have, we have in that? We uh, have Merrick Garland. Oh, but my gosh. He's he got so many long. crimes, I know. <laughs> yeah, think about him. He is the one that lied about the teachers and basically got a letter from the teachers union saying these guys are terrorists. We want you to do something about it. So he just clicked his heels and said, yes, sir. We're going to, yes, ma'am. We're going to do that. So he sent the FBI to monitor uh, parents that were worried that their kids were not getting a balanced view of the history of the United States, given critical race theory. And then he inaugurated this idea. I'm going to get every one of these Trump AIDS, and I'm going to performance art in a humiliating arrest. Steve Bannon, subpoena, he's not going to be Eric Holder, who just stuck his nose out at uh, at the Trump administration. No, siree, we are, excuse me, not the Trump, the Biden administration, uh, the Obama administration. When he was uh, subpoenaed about Fast and Furious, he said, no way, I'm not going to uh, obey a congressional subpoena. So, they went after Bannon. He went after Navarro. He went after Eastman. And he was the one that, I guess, concocted the uh, SWAT team at Roger Stone. I have no effort to defend Roger Stone, but why would the CNN crew waiting for the FBI to, to show up? He was the one that, uh, under his guidance, the FBI, I suppose, stripped down or had Mr. O'Keefe in his underwear in the hallway while they looked for Ashley Biden's incriminating diary. He was the one that uh, did the the worst thing. of He, he did the Mar-a-Lago raid, and that was really bad because he probably knew already that Joe Biden was had the same exposure in, in his asymmetrical fashion. Then he made clear that once uh, they discovered or they were told that Joe Biden, you better be careful about a special counsel investigating Trump's use of security documents because the president of the United States, who was a vice president when he took out those documents and didn't have any prerogative to declassify them, has them, then he knew that they suppressed that until the midterms were over for their own political advantage. And uh, he knew that he had a wink and nod cheek by jowl relationship with the FBI that they pulled out and let the lawyers of Joe Biden first examine everything in a way they would never have done with Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. we could keep going, but the worst yeah. was January 6th. I mean, my gosh, he unleashed these federal prosecutors and, you know, all of a sudden we, we learned a new word in our vocabulary, illegally parading. So if you were a person who showed up on January 6th and you did not get into the Capitol, but you were photographed or you were on video outside the Capitol legitimately demonstrating, they would say that you crossed some kind of barrier and you were arrested. I don't think anybody who burned down the courthouse and the police precinct and St. John's Episcopal Church they tried to burn down, I don't think any of those people were even convicted of illegal parading on those uh, 120 days of rioting. So, he will be known as the most partisan um, attorney general that we've had in memory. And he's really ruined the reputation of the of the DOJ. And that's hard to do when you had Sally Yates and Bruce Orr and all the main players coming out of there yeah. uh, in, the, in the Russian collusion hoax. Is there any yeah. others? Yes, there is. Because actually with the 
Secretary of Energy Jennifer Granholm. I'm surprised we don't hear more from her since it's high on Joe Biden's agenda, this uh, uh, you know, alternative she, in energy idea. Yeah, I think she can't. She's, uh, what's the word? She's entirely incompetent, and she knows it. And she was, I think she was a cable host for a while, and she thinks she's photogenic and charismatic and laughs, but uh, she's had some real rocky times because she came in with an administration that had self-sufficiency in energy production, and then she and Joe Biden jawbone the fracking and horizontal drilling industry to cut production. They, they pressured financial institutions not to loan them money. They put ANWR off limits. They canceled Keystone. They cut back on federal leases, especially new leases. She went uh, and basically did the the Solyndra. Remember that? That Solyndra that was under Obama. That was these huge subsidies in the infrastructure bill uh, for wind and solar. But she was was most she the, I'm sorry. Was she the energy secretary at the under the Obama administration no, as well? Oh, no, okay. she was. She, I think she was a governor, right? She was yeah. governor of Michigan in I don't know eight years, yeah. right after 2003 onward. But she, we know her because she was asked specifically. I can remember it was on television. It was a kind of a, a liberal guy, too, on either MSNBC or CNN. He says, what are you going to do to increase oil production? And she just started laughing. She said something to the effect, that's hilarious. You think I have a magic wand? Well, yeah, your magic wand could undo what you did with it. Just take your magic wand and undo the magic wand that canceled Anwar and canceled Keystone and canceled new federal leases. And you won't have to drain the Strategic Petroleum Reserve before elections. So that was, and she just started laughing. It was so, uh, it's so funny. So yeah, she's, and then she's, in, she's another Pete Buttigieg. Without, I mean, he's not. She's a little bit more photogenic than he is, I suppose. But she's, <laughs> I mean, she's incompetent. Yeah. And then we and go to Deb Holland. She's um, she's the Interior Secretary. Yeah. What? Well, she she just puts. All sorts of land off, you know, every time she's in the news, she just I'm taking another 10,000 acres of federal property and making sure that nobody can ever lease timber or, or, you know, yeah, timber, minerals, oil, gas. She's a Elizabeth Warren type, you know, hardcore, um, hardcore. I think she's from New Mexico. She was a Native American. So basically, every time she appeared anywhere, she was always, this is our first Native American cabinet officer. And then I think she, I I just know because where I live, there's a place called Squaw Valley, California. And she was famous that she wrote some edict that everywhere in the United States, there was the word squaw. She was going to make sure it was excised and Trotskyized. So, oh, wow. Yeah, okay. that's that's about it. So all these people have one thing in common. They were all selections to reward particular constituencies of the Democratic Party. So basically, two things happened. One is 
when Joe Biden was way, way behind in the 2020 primary and looked like he had not a chance in hell, the party elders uh, by January, February were paranoid. And they said, we've got a communist with Bernie Sanders and we've got a hardcore socialist with Elizabeth Warren. And then we were left with people like Kamala Harris and Spartacus. And what in the hell are we going to do? And they said, this good old Joe Biden. So he will carry any agenda and he will get elected if we if we keep him on ice. So you can't find out that he's impaired. COVID will help us. We'll change the election laws. We'll get him elected. And he will carry the left wing agenda. And that's what they did. But that required people to drop out. And that was people like Pete Buttigieg. And he got something for that was transportation. And then to the degree that it wasn't quid pro quos for these people, some of them had patrons that, that, that got them. It was ideology or it was identity politics. Mallorca's had kind of a Hispanic name. Buttigieg was gay. Holland was uh, Native American. Uh, Becerra, I guess he's Hispanic, et cetera, et cetera. It was not... No, Biden didn't go, they didn't go through and say, let's, who is the most knowledgeable person about transportation in the United States today? Who knows much, most about the interior problems in the United States? They don't do that. That's yeah, unfortunate they, have, they don't. Yeah. But, and then they have the, the, the other people that are incompetent. They kept Christopher Ray that Trump appointed, and he's been the disaster. He makes Comey look like Socrates. And <laughs> <laughs> We've got my, Millie. Millie's still there. You think they would have fired him after the call to the PLA counterpart or after uh, he turned on Trump with a photo op or after he told us Afghanistan wouldn't fall or after he told us Kiev would fall. You think, but no, he's still there, still sounding off, still wrong, wrong, wrong. Yeah. Well, Victor, this is the weekend edition, so we want to get to some historical things, and we've been on a journey into battles and wars in the past, and this week we're looking at the Peloponnesian War, but let's take a break first and come right back, and we will start on the Peloponnesian War. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back, um, Victor. So you have a book called A War Like No Other, which is explicitly on the Peloponnesian War. So I know you have a bookload of things to say about it, but I'm curious how you're going to 
circumscribe that down to something that we can get our hands on. Well, we talked about the Persian War and we're going to work our way chronologically down to Vietnam or maybe the Iraq War at some point. We're all still alive. Uh, Well, the thing about the Peloponnesian War, just as Herodotus is associated with the Persian, we have this uh, wonderful historian Thucydides, who was an Athenian general. And he was unfairly, apparently, uh, ostracized, probably by the demagogue Cleon, uh, for coming three or four days too low, too late to relieve an Athenian-controlled city in Amphipolis in northern Greece. And he took that occasion then, as he says, to write a history of the Peloponnesian War from both sides. And he was going to do it analytically. So at section 122, he says that, I tried to find all the data I could. I tried to find what people said uh, through witnesses or what I heard myself. But he does say, to the degree that I couldn't hear them, I put into their mouth what I think the occasion demanded. And that's been controversial ever since. But uh, his, his theme is that this great majestic city of Pericles in 431 renewed its war and had an earlier Peloponnesian war with Sparta, and they are antithetical. So, Athens is maritime, it's democratic, it's Ionian, it's cosmopolitan, and Sparta is landlocked, its strength is its army, it's insular, it's parochial, and it's an oligarchy, and it's Dorian. And the antithesis are so much that they're bound because each of them in their own way has power. Athens has this huge navy. Sparta has this uh, SWAT team. I guess it's it, it developed as an internal security force to keep down 300,000 Messenian helots that they'd conquer surf, so to speak. But it became the premier fighting force on land in the Greek world. So... In the proverbial elephant versus the whale, you can see that this war is not going to be easy to resolve because Sparta will win battles on land and Athens will win battles on sea and they'll be at cross purposes until one side masters the forte of the other. Well, Athens is supposed to be ingenious, brilliant. Will they create a great army and march down like the great liberator Epaminondas did? Uh, 50 years later and free the Helots and go into the city of Sparta and surround it with, you know, fortified democratic cities like Megalopolis or Mantinea or Messenia? Or will the blinkered, unimaginative Spartans build a navy? And that's what happens. So he chronicles this war and he has it. There's the Arcadamian War, the failed strategies to invade Athens and destroy the countryside between 431 and 421, the terrible plague that kills a fourth of the Athenian population, and they get a deadlock, so-called Peace of Nicias. And that's 421, basically, to uh, uh, 421, 420, all the way down to 415. And in that... Cold War, they each try to hurt the other. Athens invades Sicily. Athens tries to, to get a coalition to go down the Peloponnese at Mantinea. But this, the finale of that 
uh, Cold War breaks out with the end of the Cold War breaks out with the invasion of Sicily and Athens, then empties its empire, sends 40,000 40, people to attack what? The largest democracy in the Greek, Greek world. So here we have an Athenian democracy fighting oligarchy, supposedly in an ideological war in part, and it's attacking another democracy that's Dorian. It loses, it loses almost every person, maybe six or 7,000 survive, and it's weakened, and then Sparta gets help. Remember, in, in a war between these these powers, everybody looks at the pulse of the battlefield, like the Cold War with us, and so everybody thinks, wow, Athens got weakened in Sicily. I'll join Sparta, and that means the Boeotians start to step up, the Sicilians step up, and most importantly, the Persians give them the money to build a fleet. And so from 411 to 404, there's a series of catastrophic uh, losses for both sides in the Ionian Sea off the coast of Turkey. And finally, at Aegospotomy, the Athenians lose their fleet. And at the same time, King Aegis of Sparta is outside their walls, and they submit, and they lose. Thucydides wrote uh, from 431 to 411, and then he's, his history's unfinished. So for those last eight years of that war, you're going to have to read Xenophon's Hellenica or Plutarch's Lives or Diodorus. The thing to remember is we, he wrote in the three, probably maybe the 390s or four, 410 to 390s. So a lot of his history is problematic because the theme of the great power of Athens, the tragic, majestic Pericles city being destroyed by its own excesses in this war, it didn't quite work because after it lost the war, within 10 years, it was back again when he was alive. So we don't know to what degree he revised it or the the scenes that he writes are supposed to be comprehensive or they're just emblematic of certain themes he wants. He, he's a philosopher, so he picks and chooses what to include uh, from the war's actual events. And so we get these wonderful, wonderful little vignettes, the Pericles' funeral oration on the second year of the war. You know, that was, look at the school of Hellas, look at her, fill your heart with love for Athens. You get the Melian dialogue in 416, 415 about the doomed people on Milos and the argument for realism. You get the horrible... Uh, deaths in the Asinaris River at Sicily, where they're drinking blood and water after the destruction of the Athenian fleet. So it's, and then of course the plague, which is a classic example of paranoia and early scientific inquiry about how a plague spreads and the medical symptoms. So it's all there. To boil it down, it's simply uh, a dilemma, and that is. A democracy that is more imaginative and more diverse and more cosmopolitan uh, is also more unstable, and it's more it's more prone to excess. And a blinkered, unimaginative Sparta is able to concentrate uh, on the end and supply the means, and so it will defeat Athens at sea before Athens can defeat Sparta on land. It's been very uh, famous because um, this was the period in which Athens had been governed by its first citizen, 
uh, Pericles, who was elected for 30 years, and he dies in the second year of the war from the plague. But then all these characters we know in later literature and in popular culture, Cleon, the demagogue, or Alcibiades, the gifted man who threw, threw away his talents through his appetites, um, Sophocles, writing plays right during the war, Euripides especially, uh, this suppliant women, are Aristophanes mocking the policies of the Athenians and the Lysistrata, the peace, the knights. Uh, so everybody's there, all the great Athenians, and it's this last great gasp of Hellenism that the war both accelerates and emphasizes and yet consumes and destroys. I wrote a, a, a my first book was about the aftermath of the Peloponnesian War and whether it was all that bad because many people had said the agriculture had been destroyed utterly through the five invasions of the Spartans and then their permanent fort at Decalee and I tried to show that that wasn't true that there was no evidence for permanent destruction in fact as growing up on a farm it's very hard to destroy an olive tree or pull out thousands of vines or burn grain at any other time except a brief drying uh, period when it's combustible, and then usually it's harvested. Uh, finally, Sammy, it's caught the attention of almost every famous philosopher. Hobbes did a, a, a very famous translation of the um, Peloponnesian War, but lately, to make this relevant, uh, Graham Allison, the Harvard political scientist, or I guess he's in government, there wrote a book called the Thucydides Trap. You heard of that? And the, no, I I mean I have heard of the term, but I I don't know what it means to be honest. Well, it it it's it comes from some passages in the first book of Thucydides' history when there's a debate over what Athens should do and what Sparta should do. And there's King Archidamus speaks to the Spartans and the Corinthians, and then we have Pericles earlier setting out the Athenian view, and he looked at that and he came up with a Thucydides trap. And what he said was that when uh, in these speeches, there's some indication that Sparta is acting uh, as the uh, in fear of the upstart Athens, that if they do not go to war, and they start the war because De Ure, they cross the border of Athens in May of 431, and the Athenians do not stop the war. In fact, they act kind of passively by abandoning their country. But in that, he said, they fear, the Corinthians say that these Athenians are too restless, they're getting more powerful, you're getting more weak. And so the idea is we don't stop them now, we never will be able to. And the fear of Athens, Thucydides, so Allison took those speeches and came up with a thesis that in wars, when you have a status quo, powerful, but static or ossifying uh, superpower, and it is challenged by a new upstart, then uh, sometimes we have to be very careful because the status quo power will try to start a war before the upstart can take control. And he applied that to China and the United States. And we were the superpower. We were uh, the Spartans, so to speak, I suppose. And China was Athens taking over. And therefore, we would try to stop them. 
before they got too powerful. And it was sort of a warning to be careful against that with your China rhetoric. And he went through the same thing. There were tensions with the United States and Britain, for example, in the early 20th century, where people in Britain thought, you know what, we've been overtaken by American GDP and the future is going to be very dangerous. There were people uh, in the United States that thought that the Soviet Union was uh, on the road to mastery uh, in the 1940s and 50s, and we would have to have a preemptive attack before they had an overwhelming nuclear capability. People said the same thing about Japan uh, in the 1970s. So I think it's a flawed idea. It's too simplistic, and it misinterprets Thucydides, because when you read the totality of the history, he gives all sorts of reasons why there was a war. There was, a, and they're all preventable. And there, it's a proxy war between Corinth and Corsaira, democracies versus oligarchies. Then each side pitches in. Uh, there's the siege at Potidaea. There's the so-called Megarian problem, Megarian decree, which is not mentioned, I don't think, by Thucydides, but but he's very attuned to the role of Megarus. So what I'm getting at is when you read the funeral oration and Pericles outlines the difference between a free and unfree society, a Doric, Ionic, democracy, oligarchic, land, uh, sea, closed, open society, the antithesis is so marked and so distinct that it's almost inevitable that they're going to have a war unless some great statesman can prevent this this abyss from growing. It's not because, you know, just because one speaker says, well, the, what, what Thucydides says is, and what caused the war was a Spartan fear of Athens. And the Athenian fear, of, I, sh I should say, of, of uh, Sparta. So... It was the idea that the Spartans were afraid that, um, gosh, they've got a monster on their hands in this new reckless democracy that's taking over everything. And people, Athens was growing. People wanted to go to Athens. They wanted to meet Socrates. They wanted to hear Euripides. They wanted to look at the Parthenon. They didn't want to go down to Sparta. And at one point, Thucydides says, you know, Way in the future, if you were to look at Sparta, when it, you would never think it's powerful because there's not, not going to be anything there. And if future generations look at Athens, they see the Acropolis, they're going to think it's much more powerful than it actually was. So that, mm. that kind of suggests to you that these, these impressions uh, were important. So I think what I'm trying to say is Allison took one truth and he made it the truth, but there were so many other reasons that they were so antithetical and doomed to fight. And uh, when you have two powers and each has a particular area of strength and they emphasize that, then they're, as I said, they're at cross purposes. Anytime a land power fights a sea power, uh, it's going to be kind of problematic because neither side can find a way to destroy the Navy or the army of the other until they, they become more flexible. And, uh, 
he seems to make um, observations. Like I remember the war at Corsaira, the civil war at Corsaira. He narrates the war and then and how Athens and Sparta took different sides. One, the Demos, Athens and and Sparta, siding with the oligarchs. But then when he gets to the end of the narration, he starts to reflect on it and talk about the broader. Um, implications. He does. Of he the says war. That w- words change their meanings. When you have, that's the locus classicus of when you tear off because of this bloodletting and civil war, you tear off the thin veneer of civilization and you get human nature in the raw. And that means yeah. brother kills brother and words change their meaning. So the extremist always wins. The duller wits always defeat the sophisticated because they, they think this can't happen or they're going to try to outthink you. The duller wits just want to go kill you. And they yeah. know how to. So, but a lot of people have called him, I think it was Robert Connor, called him the postmodernist. And by that, they meant that his primary purpose was not to go, even though he claimed it was, to go year by year by year by year and chronicle the war. He does do that. But what their point was that he's looking across the terrain of the war to find a particular incident that will amplify his views on human nature, which are that humans are pretty awful, that human nature is unchanging, and that we are savage beasts, and only civilization and culture save us. And without them, then what happens? Well, without them, a plague breaks out, and people steal the bodies of their friend's dead father, or the body of their dead sister, and they put it on their fire, their funeral pyre, because they don't have enough fuel. Or they leave people in the street to be unattended because they're afraid. And the people who were not afraid are performance arting their virtue and they die. Or the Middleenians, if you're a, a rabble democracy, you can vote on Monday to kill all the Middleenians that were involved in the insurrection 150 miles away and Lesbos. And then the next day you think, oh, my God, we just voted. Let's go not vote. And then send out a second trireme to save it and cancel the first. You're that volatile. Or the Melian dialogues, you can say, you know what, Melians, we've got the we've got the we've got the power, we've got the ship. Look at you. So if you were smart and humane, you wouldn't be wiped out. And they said, but but Athenians, but if you wiped us out and we were in neutral, then everybody will hate you. And they're all joined against you because you were so unjust and savage to us. He said, well, <laughs> we'd like to believe the world works that way. And it would be nice if it did. But essentially, it doesn't. You know what they're going to say <laughs> if we let you live that we're weak. And then they're going to start rebelling. But if we crush you like a bug, they're going to start obeying us. So that's we don't want to do it. But that's what we're going to have to do. And that brings up this whole question of if you're a Melian envoy, do you, what's the... What's the, you know, what's the proper course? Do you die on your feet or you live on your knees? If the Athenians had had the same <laughs> attitude that, that, you know, the Melians did, if they, I mean, they fought, the Melians fought and they died and the Athenians killed them. But the Persians told the Athenians the same thing at Thermopylae, uh, the Spartans, and the same thing. At Artemisium and the same thing at Salamis. You don't have a chance. What are you doing? But the things the Athenians said, screw you. 
and they won their freedom. So it's very ambiguous what you're supposed to do. But yeah. that's a, that's another example. And then the Sicilian expedition is just utter tragedy. At the height of the city, they empty it and they send it on a wild goose chase. And Thucydides being the loyal Athenian says, you know what? For all the stupidity, if they had have at least followed through and finished what they said they were going to, they could have won. I don't know if his text contradicts that. But so my long, windy point is he's a philosopher and he's trying mm. to convey philosophical eternal lessons by blowing up incidents into morality ta- or philosophical examples that may that may that may be not representative of their actual their actual importance in the history and what yeah. i mean by that he, there was 31 funeral orations supposedly at athens each year i don't know why he took one and said this he didn't tell us about the other ones i i know plataea was wiped out, but so was Scione and Torone. Uh, he didn't tell us anything about them. He just told us about Plataea. There was all sorts of revolts where they destroyed people. But why Milos? Because of the, something came to his attention that re, that reflected a philosophical point he wanted to make. Yeah, yeah. And there's all those. I you call them philosophical points. I would I would call them interesting nuggets or pearls all the way through the story where he makes broad observations about, as you say, eternal truths about war one against the other, it's, which it's, is... Yeah, it's and it's beautifully written. The speeches, there's 130, uh, I mean, yeah, 131 speeches in direct and indirect discourse. And they're very hard to read in Greek because he's writing in the first generation of Attic prose stylus and the language is not up to the level of thought. So when he has to invent words, he has to have a, abstractions for which there is not a vocabulary with circumlocutions. He has to use this thing we call in Greek the articular infinitive of purpose uh, in the genitive case. It's, it's very hard to read the speeches, but the regular text is pretty easy. It's well, very well written. He's got a very yeah. strange style that was not emulated by others. Maybe Tacitus is the closest historian that is, and Polybius are considered Thucydidean. Yeah. uh, It's a beautiful thing to read. I think, wish all of you would read it. And uh, it's got some lines there that are just immortal that they, they, that last line about the Sicilian expedition. And such was the defeat of the Athenians. It was total, it was. It was comprehensive, and few we returned. Few of the many returned home, so we yeah. ended events in Sicily. It's pretty. Yeah. It's, well, you know, you ended anyway. you ended Herodotus by saying that it's a um, example of, or it really set the model for East versus West um, powers. How would you do? Do you have a similar observation yeah, about so, the I mean, Peloponnesian he, War? Is it? Yeah, it Herodotus tried to, to show the antithesis. And he was very sympathetic to the East. He was an anthropological investigator, so he was not prejudicial. But he, you read that history, and there are very there's great differences between constitutional or consensual government and monarchy and kind of uh, familial rule versus individualism or totalitarianism versus individual liberty in the West. And the same thing, this is a primer on what is the best 
or most effective form of government? Is it an oligarchy or a radical democracy? Or is it to invest in an army or a navy? And he's he's ambiguous, but if you read it very carefully, you can start to see where his sympathies lie. And he says at one point in the Revolution of 411 at Athens that they, before the 30 took power, they had what they called the 5,000. And these were 5,000 of the 30,000 citizens that had property of a particular size. And he says that this type of democracy, which the critics called an oligarchy, was the best government because it combined uh, the idea of consensuality with a lot of thousands of people making wills, but you had to have some qualification. You just couldn't be a riffraff, so to speak. And that he's he it's very clear he does not like direct democracy. That is on any given day, two days a month maybe, but even more sometimes you can meet and then 7,000 people shout and yell and whatever they say is you know, let's go to Mytilene and kill these people. No, let's not. Let's go out to meet. No, that kind of attitude uh, is very dangerous in government. So he's anti-radical democracy, but he's more of a modified democracy of the type that Aristotle calls politeia. Aristotle has his typologies of democracy, and he believed the most effective was a democracy. And I'm not being self-interested here, but of farmers people who had to stay away from town, they were busy, they were independent, they were autonomous, those people, uh, and they weren't the majority, maybe half of the resident population, like Thebes, for example, when it became democratic. So yes, that's the antithesis between uh, oligarchy and radical democracy. And he's also very impressed with sea power. He was an admiral. So what he's also suggesting is that Sparta won because Persia gave it the money to hire crews and build a fleet. It wouldn't have won without that. Mm. And he's saying that Athens was strong because it was fleet. And fleets allow you to import and export goods. It allows you to put troops anywhere you want them. And it has an enormous amount of advantages over just a static army. And I think you can see in World War One and Two, there's some wisdom to that, that the Axis powers, after you know, he basically destroyed very quickly the Japanese fleet. But the fact that the British and the American Americans had the number one fleet by the end of the war, British had the number one fleet at the start of the war, and we were able to defeat Italy and Germany in four years both times. And Germany really didn't have a fleet. Submarines in World War II and the fleet in World War One after Jutland was sort of negated. But sea power was our great advantage. It is today. Yeah. And uh, it's always good to invest in a Navy. He's a very big proponent of naval power, in, mm -hmm. in, and that's very important. And uh, he also doesn't like radical democracy, but he always gives it its due. It's, it's the one type, because it's inclusive, it can recover, it can make, blunders like no other country, but it can recover from them quickly. So as soon as Sicily disaster thinks, after the disaster, you think it, they're all over. And he says, no, as democracies always do, in panic mode, they took the necessary measures to rebuild the fleet. And the war mm. goes on for, as I said, it goes on for another 11 years. 
Well, Victor, um, we need to take a break and I should we're say eight, come back. eight or nine years, excuse me. <laughs> we'll we'll come back and talk a little bit about the rewriting of Roald Dahl's um books. Wow. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Matilda, The Witches, James and the Giant Peach. So stick with us and we'll come back to have a conversation on Roald Dahl. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Thank you for sticking with us. And uh, Victor, so we have, I I just don't understand it because they want to change words like they I don't know what they want to change for black, but he does use the word black apparently, or man, or fat, or crazy, or I guess female as well. These are all words that shouldn't be used. They might hurt somebody's feelings, so they are going to rewrite the books to take, and that's just a, a subset of the words out. And I was wondering what your thoughts were on this new endeavor by our publishers. So many things that are bothersome about this. Um, I did a little bit in my three minutes on Jesse Waters on Tuesday night about this. He asked me, first of all, they're so hypocritical. I think Random House has the U.S. rights and maybe Hachette or Puffin Books, the world rights or British rights. But so the publisher has this author, Roland, Roald, uh, Dahl, who's probably the most successful child's author, not, I mean, I shouldn't say teen author, but small ch children, there has been. And he sold, what, 250 million copies? He's very accomplished polymath, the Renaissance man. He's married to Patricia Neal. You all remember her from HUD. Uh, she was in Breakfast at Tiffany's, 30-year career. I think he was married and had several children with her. He was an RAF pilot, highly decorated, and fought uh, in North Africa and Greece and was severely wounded. I think it, it made him, he had to be medically discharged because he, he uh, had a terrible head injury. So he was a patriot. He was interested in science, cryptology, worked for the government. He did everything. But as a man of his times, he put things in there to blow off steams within his characters. He made up words. He was a very good stylist. That's very important to remember. He was a stylist. So those books are they are kind of like Dr. Zeus. They're very well written and they're clever and witty, almost like Lewis Carroll, some of them. 
And so my point is that you're dealing with a giant of literature in that genre. So here we come along now in 2022, 23, and we say, you know what? We don't like to have our children reading fat. There's some anti-Semitic things. There, we don't mind that they go to school and they get go to the library and there's a sexual manual about transgendered with graphic illustrations, or someone talks about burning, uh, removing breast or your testicle. That's okay, but you can't read about fat or have the word female instead of woman, or any of these other illiberal ideas. So that's number one. It's ridiculous. Number two, if these publishers find that they don't like the style or the vocabulary, or why don't they just give up their rights? Just say, you know what? Mr. Dahl is an insensitive bigot. We want nothing to do with him. But they don't. Why don't they just say, you know what? You know, Encounter Books is uh, Roger Kimball's a great editor. It's a conservative. We at the Bradley Foundation uh, help it out. Why don't they just say, hey, Bradley, hey, Encounter Books, take this doll book. We, it's, it's what you conservatives, you're, you'll tolerate that. But they don't because they want to make money, 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 money. So remember something about the woke. It's pick and choose, pick and choose. We're going to get rid of Junipio Serra Boulevard on campus uh, excuse me, Hunipio Sarah's tiny little courtyard in front of the Hoover Tower, but not the huge, no, not Hunipio Sarah Boulevard. That's something else. And we're not going to change the name of Stanford because he was a robber baron who was an anti-Asian bigot. See, they pick and choose. So we're going to go after Mr. Dahl's words, but we're not going to ban the book because he makes us a lot of money. That's the first thing. The second is, where do you stop? So Solomon Rushdie weighed in, satanic verses. They almost killed him. They stabbed him, probably robbed part of his eyesight not too long ago. Or are we going to go back when he's dead and said, you know what? We're going to change all those references that we find to Muslims, and we're going to change them. And the author's going to have no say because he's dead. And we're going to be just like the censors in 1984. Or... You know, one of the best short stories by um, Conrad, Joseph Conrad, is The N of Narcissus. You've read that. Uh, yeah. And it has the N word. It doesn't mean in the modern American sense of it. It's more the word uh, black in Latin. It comes from that. It's not necessarily a, a put down. At least it was a put down, but it's more of a descriptive word from its etymology in its etymological sense. But are we going to take that out? We can do that. We've already gone after Mark Twain. Uh, T.S. Eliot, I think you could argue, was the greatest English poet, you know, based on the wasteland and the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, Garantian. Well, that that poem has a lot about, uh, not a lot, but at least two anti-Semitic lines in it. And I think he wrote something called The Bedeker Guide to Burbankers. That has some anti... Are you going to get rid of T.S. Eliot? How about Ezra Pound? He was a Nazi and said all kinds of stuff. Uh, but no, we're not going to do that, apparently. But this is the main thing, Sammy. So you've now established the principle that our moral superiors of the present have so much more 
ethical virtue and so much more wisdom than these awful people like Dahl or Conrad or Pound uh, or Rushdie that they can change or want to change words. Why don't they just say, you know what, I'll take a deep breath and not apply my standards of the present back to the past, but I will apply the standards of the present to the present. So let's think of what is the word that is now considered the most offensive in the English language. I think it's the N-word. And who uses the N-word? Ah, I'm going through the songs of Snoop Dogg and Kanye West and Jay-Z and Cardi B, and I found it. So I'm going to excise all of those words and they can't sing it. How's that? Or if we play them, it's going to be out. Oh, How about violence against the police? Mr. Kendrick Lamar was a guest at the White House. He has hate the popo, police, police. We're going to get rid of that. And how about the misogynist language about bitch and whore and all that stuff, H-O? Are we going to go through that? So my point is, why don't we do that? Because that affects us right now. And that permeates. Let me ask you a question. As we're saying sitting right now in America, and you are listening, how many people right now are reading a doll children's book versus how many people are listening to a rap song with bitch or N-word, kill the police, fuck this, this? Who? How many? You see what I'm saying? Yes. And, And we don't do any of that because we're moral midget cowards. And this whole woke thing is based on cowardice. They, they've scanned the horizon and they go after the vulnerable and they go after them and they attack them and attack them and attack them. And they don't have a systematic, disinterested standard by which they apply, by which they can apply it to anybody. It's always biased and prejudicial and hypocritical and paradoxical. That's what I get angry about. So, yes, they feel really big that they're going to make even more money by insuring Miss PC suburban mom that lives in Carmel that her son won't find the word fat in that story. And now he'll feel better about himself. And she, and therefore, she will buy the next doll book and make more money for them. That's how they think. But... Uh, when he's walking down the street to school and a car goes by very slowly with the boom speakers and it's a blank the bitch and blank the dun, the dun, the dun. she's not going to touch that. No, I don't want to get involved with the rap industry. It's a multi-billion dollar industry and I'll be called a racist and politically incorrect. So until they start doing that, when, once they start doing that and say we have a standardized code, we apply it to everybody, we do not allow... Uh, hurtful words uh, in music or in lyrics or in books, and we're going to pressure people to stop it. And then let's see what happens. But they're not going to do that. Much less are they going to do it if it involves the Chinese. If the Chinese tell the, if Steve Kerr and LeBron give us lectures about China, and I don't have any problem, and they're making $5 billion. LeBron will make a million, a billion dollars in his lifetime contract with Nike. Nike. But the NBA will make $5 billion, I think, a year with its franchising with China. And that's, you know, if you tell them, hey, you guys, 
you're going to have to stop that off because China goes into Hollywood and says for these joint productions that you think we're going to let our 1.4 billion person audience pay for it and we're invested in it. We have we have control. We do not want any dark skin actors. Our people do not like them. So if you're going to put actors, make sure they're light skin. And they did that. And Hollywood, for all of its bravery about saying that Donald Trump should be decapitated, burned alive, they didn't say anything. They went along with it. Yeah, of course. Just, just like the NBA goes along with it. So mm-hmm. remember that about the left, everybody, that they talk a great game and they talk about moral virtue, but this is they're not moral people. They're opportunists, and they have enormous appetites for the good life, and they're selective, and they're ideological. And so, and that that governs what word is permissible or not permissible. If it, Mr. Okay. Dahl was selling one book a year, they would just say, oh my God, we have a, on our back list, we have this guy named Dahl. <laughs> He's selling 15 copies a week. He's got all this stuff like fat and unkind references. Let's just drop him. They would. But now they're saying, oh, my God, that was a lot of money. And he's in a dying book industry. He's making us a lot of money. So we'll just tamper with the text a little bit because the right and the conservatives, they'll bitch. But, you know, they're live and let live. But those crazy left-wing people. They might go after us and we could hurt sales. So we'll get the best of both worlds. We'll get to have his books and we'll kind of, you know, knead our brow and say, oh, my gosh, we were kind of bothered by Mr. Dahl, but we'll, we really want to sell his books. It's an insult to him. Yeah. That was that was his brand mark that he was a kind of a controversial heterodox uh, who liked to play with words and make kind of dark children's books and some you know he wrote for uh, i think he wrote for alfred hitchcock and twilight zone and he doesn't deserve to have his work edited after he's dead unless you yeah. live in the soviet union if we, this was <laughs> if this was russia and, and he was going to be trotskyized i could see it but he's got to put all of this in context that these are the same people who they keep talking about mccarthyism for ad nauseum McCarthy is McCarthy. ACLU is wonderful. ACLU, free speech, free speech. Linda Lovelace and Deep Throat. You got to have everybody's got to be able to see that. God, yeah, that's the, these are the people. And they were never for free speech. They were for their type of pornographic uh, gross speech or anti-government speech or communist speech. But on the other side, uh-uh, they want to use the totalitarian meat cleaver to cut it off because they're not Democrats. They're not progressive they're regressive totalitarian mm-hmm. authoritarian well victor i have one more question for yeah. you and i know it's i don't know if you can be fast on this because we're right at the end and i know that you have to leave but um, there's been some um controversy over tucker getting the january 6 the capitol hill videos from the speaker of the house Kevin McCarthy, and I was wondering what your thoughts on that, you know, that it's somehow might be a compromise of national security, I think, is the suggestion. So, Well, the House is uh, the Speaker of the House is in control of the Capitol Police archives, and it's as bad or as not as bad as Nancy 
Pelosi. So she had control of all of the videotapes, what, 40,000 hours? And she decided that nobody could see them except the January 6th committee. And who was on that? No authentic Republican. If you were a Republican and there was only two, then you had to agree to basically you had to have voted for Donald Trump and you had to have no political career ahead of you, which both Kissinger, Kinzinger and Cheney did. They were politically inert and they voted for impeachment. Therefore, they went along with this uh, star chamber investigation. And so they had it, Sammy. They had all of the tapes. And they quoted from them and they mentioned them and they leaked about them selectively. And Nancy Pelosi went along and nobody on the left said a word. So now Kevin McCarthy has them. And from what we understand, he's going to release all of it. But in the first released, he decided to let Tucker Carlson go through it first and then be the first to publish it. Maybe he shouldn't, maybe he shouldn't, but he was just sending a message that this is what the January 6th committee did. They took a political all left-wing committee and took a monopoly and then told the public what was on it, what was on it. And if you said, I don't believe that is the whole story, it didn't matter. You, Nancy Pelosi was not going to let you see what was on it. Now, uh, Tucker has... Uh, some And you know what he's going to show. He's going to show, he's going to emphasize that there were people who have been charged that did nothing. They're going to show that maybe Mr. Epps is on there screaming and yelling. There's going to be showing there might be, who knows, FBI people cheering on or leading FBI informants. We'll see. But the point is this, is whereas you could not get access to the January 6th uh, videos that the January 6th committee was using selectively, you will have access to these. It's just a matter of time. He's going to let them all out, but he wants to make sure that Tucker can can have an opportunity first to show you that the January 6th committee was edited and selective. Yeah. Yeah. So that'll be good. Well, thank you very much. I would have just thrown it out there. I would just sort of, but he's, he's kind of doing what I think the model was Elon Musk. People said, well, why didn't Elon Musk just release it all, right? Why yeah. did he have Matt Tlaibe and, you know, Barry Weiss and others, Schellen, Michael Schellenberg be uh, vocal, or- orchestrated? And I think the answer is he wanted more attention. So I think McCarthy is saying, once I let him be the initial conduit, it's going to cause a lot of controversy and attention and people are going to look at this and see that it's not quite what the January 6th committee said it was. Yeah, so that will be interesting to see how that pans out. Well, thank you very much, Victor, for all of your discussion, especially of the Peloponnesian War today. I really enjoyed that. Okay, and thanks everybody for listening once again. Yeah, thank you. And this is Victor Davis Hanson and Sammy Wink, and we're signing off. It's Amanda Head, and I am thrilled to introduce to you my new exciting podcast, Furthermore, with Amanda Head, broadcasting weekly from sunny Los Angeles, California, and brought to you by the dynamic Just the News Podcast Network. On this fresh and engaging podcast, I delve into the latest news with a little bit of a twist, exploring the furthermore 
of every story, but this isn't your typical run-of-the-mill news commentary or politically charged program. I interview a diverse range of guests, including business leaders, entertainers, musicians, educators, expert politicians, and many influential figures from both the United States and around the world. So why not make your Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays a little more interesting? Tune in on your preferred podcast platform and discover furthermore with Amanda Head on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And don't forget to hit that follow or subscribe button and be sure to download the latest episodes. I can't wait to have you join me on this exciting journey.